Let's go before our God, just asking him to open our eyes to the truths of his word. Lord, we thank you that your word is unchanging, that it is as true today, as applicable today as the day that it was written. Father, I pray that you would silence the voices of culture and silence the voices of our own pride and help us, O Lord, to bow ourselves before the scriptures. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 4 through 6 today, and this actually deals with two topics, marriage in verse 4, and then verse 5, it deals with money. We're going to look at at the money part of it next week. Today, we're going to deal with the topic of marriage. Now, you might remember that a month ago, I preached on the topic of marriage and sexuality from one chapter before, Hebrews chapter 12. And so initially I thought, you know, I don't know if I need to preach on that again just one month later. But I decided it was well worth my time and your time to do so for a couple of reasons. One reason is because in one sermon one month ago, I couldn't have said all that needs to be said about marriage. Another reason is some of you are not here and may not have heard it. Others of you are here but don't remember it, and so it won't hurt for you to hear it again. And the third reason is that all day, every day, you are living in a world that is deceived and seeking to deceive you about marriage and sexuality. And and, and so my desire in preaching this text is that the truths of God's word would be reinforced in your heart so that the lies of this world would fall upon deaf ears. So with that said, look with me at God's word, Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever and ever. One of the joys, and I think this has been an increasing joy in 10 years of being here, but one of the joys is watching on Sunday mornings as people bring their Bibles. This, was, uh, this has been something that has grown in the life of the church, but many of you bring your own Bibles so that you can take notes uh, that you can take home with you. And it is a joy to see you as believers carrying the scriptures with you to church. Christians have historically been known as people of the book. Hey, you are, you, you follow that tradition. You're a people that love your Bibles. Now, I wonder if someone were to see you in public with your Bible. Maybe you're in a coffee shop spending time with the Lord. Maybe you're in a car repair shop waiting on your car to be fixed and you're reading the, the Bible. And somebody said to you, what is the Bible all about? How would you answer them? It's a book about God. Certainly that's true. It's a book about man and how we got here, and that's true. It's a book about salvation. It's a book about how to live. All of those answers would would be right. There's another answer you could give, and I'm not sure if it would fly off of most of our tongues, but that other answer is the Bible is a book about marriage. 
The Bible starts with the creations of the heavens and the earth. And immediately you see this, this wedding between Adam and Eve. You see, the earth wasn't created primarily as a home for the animals. It wasn't created as a botanical garden. It was created to be home for the first couple as they would come together to glorify and enjoy God together. And the Bible begins with marriage. The Bible will end with marriage as well. The, the final couple being Christ and the church. And the home for the final couple will be the new heavens and the new earth. Hear me on this, please. Marriage may be commonplace today in our world, but it is sacred in the eyes of its designer. And so if we are really a people of the book then we have to understand the importance of marriage, not only how we are to live, for those of us who are married, how we're to live as married couples, but we have to understand something even bigger than marriage itself, which is that marriage is a picture of something greater. Go back with me to the garden. God, after man's fall into sin, God could have said, no more, I am done with you. And he wouldn't have been wrong to do so because when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not make a mistake. They did not commit a minor offense. They were saying to God, we have heard your instructions, but we don't want you to be God over us. We will be God for ourselves. That was the choice they made by eating the fruit in the garden. Now, if I were God, I would have been done with them. I would have wiped them off the face of the earth. It's a good reason I'm not God. But God wasn't done. And one of the ways we know from the Garden of Eden that God was not done with man, that he had a purpose for them, was because he allowed marriage to endure even after the fall. This good gift of marriage perseveres even after sin entered the world. Now, sin affected marriage, certainly. It makes marriage at times hard, at times fragile, at times broken. And some of you bear the wounds of the brokenness and difficulty of marriage in, in a fallen world. But the enduring picture of marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church his covenant bride, to whom he would come as the faithful husband to redeem, restore, and receive this unfaithful bride. And this glorious picture will one day reach its fulfillment in a great wedding banquet in the new heavens and the new earth where Christ and his church will dwell forever in the greatest honeymoon imaginable. See, marriage is bigger than just marriage. It's a big deal. In fact, it's no stretch to say the whole storyline of the Bible is one of love and marriage. The story of love promised, love betrayed, love incarnate, love crucified, love risen, love ascended, love returning. One day, love consummated as Christ returns to receive his bride. With that as our background, we can understand why, as Hebrews ha has been getting into such critical stuff for the Christian life, such important stuff for the Christian life, one of the final exhortations in this last chapter of Hebrews is, you better get marriage right. You better figure out what marriage is for, because marriage is so critical to the Christian life and to the health of the church. And so as we look at this text, we're going to see 
three things, three points that I think are massively important for us today as we walk through life, in a life in which marriage is the most hotly contested and commonly misunderstood topic probably on the face of the earth. These three things are, first, marriage is precious. Second, marriage is vulnerable. And third, Jesus is better. If you've been with us throughout Hebrews, you know that's the theme of this whole book. Jesus is better. And in this case, we're going to see that Jesus is better than even the greatest of earthly marriages. So first, the first thing I want you to see about marriage is marriage is precious. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. The the translation we have for that word honor, it's a Greek word, timios, and the word honor I think is too weak for it. It's a word that's used 13 times in the New Testament. Honor is used twice to translate it. Uh, Eight times I think it's used um, to talk about precious metals, but to get a real sense of the strength of this word, listen to how Peter used it. First Peter 1.19, he speaks of the timios, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, Peter talks about the timios promises of God, the precious promises of God. In other words, honor really doesn't scratch the surface of this word. Marriage rightly understood, marriage biblically understood, must be precious in our sight. It's common for people to say marriage today is just a social construct. It it sort of arose out of of human evolutionary need for, for companionship and for procreation. But marriage did not rise up out of the course of human social interactions. Marriage came down from God as a gift from above. The, the, the ceremonies, the ways in which we celebrate marriage, those change from culture to culture. But marriage itself is divinely created. It isn't cultural and contextual. It's cosmic and creational. I want you to imagine for a, a few moments that we had an opportunity to sit down with Adam and Eve and look at their photo album from their wedding. The first picture might be Adam all alone as as God's newly formed creation. And then the second might be Adam with that line of animals that God charged him with naming, uh, taking dominion over the animals. And I think there would have been a, a look of awe on Adam's face as animal after animal came by and Adam caught glimpse after glimpse of the glory and creativity of God. But imagine we turn the page, and in the next picture, there's a look of of sorrow on Adam's face. God, I've seen every type of animal you made. They're beautiful, but none of them are like me. I spoke to them all. None of them spoke to me. I gave them names, but I, I can't give any of them my heart. And it's at this point in history that God says, Adam, my son, it is not good that you should be alone. Now, God's not perplexed by this. This is not an unanticipated thing that entered into creation, some shortcoming. He's saying, my son, I'm not done yet. In fact, you've realized now, after seeing all those animals, you've realized now 
what you really need, the one created for you. And so God says to him, trust me, my son, and deep sleep falls upon Adam, and God takes out a rib. Adam was made from the dirt. Eve was made from Adam. Men, sometimes our wives look at us and wonder why we're so much less refined than they are. It's a creation thing. They're double refined. We were made from dirt. They're beautiful earthen vessels. And then we would turn the next page and there'd be a look of great joy on Adam's face as he wakes up and beholds this stunning bride who, unlike anything else in all creation, is adorned with the beauty of the image of God himself. And this man, in the first human words spoken in Scripture, says, This at last is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. In other words, God, the animals have their place, but she has my heart. You know, I, I get a, a neat privilege. Those of us who are ministers have a neat privilege when we officiate a wedding. Because the doors open and the bride comes out and all of you turn and face her. But I have a unique privilege of being right there with, with the groom as he sees his bride on the wedding day. And I have never been disappointed by the groom's reaction. It is one that just reflects exactly what Adam experienced in the garden. This is awesome. He looks at her. And he says, she's like me, but you know, she's also different than me. She doesn't look the exact same as me. And so he calls her, he's called Ish, man in the Hebrew. He calls her Isha, woman in the Hebrew. They're the same, but they're different. And then we flip the page of the wedding album again, and, and you can see the happy couple. And imagine the words of Genesis 2.24 printed on the page, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. It's a beautiful picture. One man, one woman, covenanting together to share the fullness of mortal life as one flesh. God could have designed marriage in any number of ways. It could have been two men, two women, three partners, but God's desire and design was to define marriage, one man, one woman, to share all of life together. Only God had the prerogative to determine that, and he took man with man's particular strengths and weaknesses and woman with her particular strengths and weaknesses, and he brought them together, and he said, the two of you can glorify and enjoy me better together than apart. I heard recently of a couple years ago when he proposed, he used the words of Psalm 34, 3. Come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. And then at the end of their marriage, after a lifetime of faithfully loving each other and walking with Christ, on their tombstone were written the words, we magnified the Lord together and exalted his name forever. That's a couple who understood how precious marriage is because in marriage, in the one man, one woman, one flesh relationship, 
we're able to glorify God in a whole new way. You know, even if you didn't say that at your wedding, look at your spouse this afternoon and say those words, come, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name forever. It's never too late to say that to one another. But just to show how important marriage is, God took marriage and made it the basic building block of society. It's through marriage that the family grows. It's through the family that the church grows. It's, it's for the purpose of blessing the family that, and the church that, that the government exists. And so when marriage is right, families go right, churches go right, nations go right. But as you know, with any gift that is good, And any gift that has such potential to bring human flourishing and to bring glory to God, there will always be a tax upon it. The evil one, the enemy of God, the enemy of your souls, Satan, and all who are opposed to God hate all of God's good gifts. And so there's always an effort to corrupt them. The more precious the gift the more vulnerable it is to attack. And so the second thing I want you to see is marriage is vulnerable. Look at verse 4, the second part. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For us to understand what it means there about marriage bed, we have to understand that there is an intensely intimate component of marriage. In marriage, two different lives, two unique souls merge together. It's different than normal friendship. Friendship has boundaries. Marriage has no boundaries. Marriage is the willingness of one man and one woman to voluntarily enter into sacred covenant before God and witnesses that you will journey through life together, uh, sharing one life, one faith, one hope, one home, one bed, one bank account, one bathroom, one bathroom sink, all of it, one suffering, one joy, one intimacy that excludes all others. So why we take vows in marriage. You don't take vows in friendship. And if we all saw each other as we really are, we'd have no friends. If we all saw everybody at our most bare our most raw, our most honest, everybody would flee. Well, in marriage, that's exactly what happens, is you see each other at our worst. You see each other at their most bare. But you've taken vows to be together for better or worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health. On the wedding day, two selfish me's become one united us with complete openness to one another. It's a picture of deep spiritual intimacy, and there's a symbol of that that God has given. The symbol of that deep spiritual intimacy, that laying our lives bare for each other, is what Hebrews refers to here as the marriage bed. The physical act of marital intimacy is indicative of the fact that this is the person to whom you can bear your whole soul because God has called you to cleave, to hold fast 
to one another. This intimacy is a, a wonderful gift from God. It, it's a, actually a reflection of the love of Christ in, in verse 6, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the reality is that the beauty of, of physical intimacy in marriage is exactly the vulnerable point for most marriages. In fact, most marriages have two major vulnerabilities. One is, is sexuality. The, the other is the checkbook, is, is finances. We're going to talk about finances next, next week. But Satan loves to drive a wedge into the intimacy, the oneness of marriage, by corrupting, by defiling the marriage bed. And the author of Hebrews lists two ways that marriage specifically, the marriage bed can be corrupted. Sexual immorality, it's the word pornus, it's, it's the root of our word pornography. And then adultery. These are two very black and white categories, and our, our world does not like black and white. It loves a lot of gray area, it loves loopholes, it loves uh, that the lines be very blurred. But the lines are very black and white here. In warning against sexual immorality and adultery, here's what Hebrews is saying. There will never be a scenario, there will never be a category, there will never be a loophole in which any sexual activity outside of the one man, one woman relationship within the bonds of marriage will ever be acceptable before God. There is no scenario where any activity outside of the one man, one woman, sacred covenantal relationship before God will ever be acceptable in the eyes of God himself. That's what Hebrews is saying here. Why? Because that's how God created it to be. By the way, this issue of biblical marriage, we've sort of distilled it down to the issue of one man, one woman, but it's so much broader than that. Biblical marriage requires that we bring all of marriage into submission to Christ, every aspect of it. And so just because you believe marriage is between one man and one woman doesn't mean that you necessarily believe in biblical marriage. For example, if Biblical marriage means that we have homes where husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you profess to believe in biblical marriage, but you mistreat your wife and do not cherish her as Christ loved the church, then you don't believe in biblical marriage. Wives, you may profess to believe in biblical marriage, but if you do not honor and submit to your husbands the way that Ephesians 5 instructs you to, you don't believe in biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is a holistic approach to marriage. It's not just peripheral. It's not just those issues that are out there. It's the issues that you and I face week after week, day after day, as we walk through life with our spouse. What about what our culture calls same-sex marriage? Let's just start with this. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. You cannot take the good name of marriage that God has established and apply it to things that are an abomination to God. And so first, we just need to get our terminology right. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. I do not say that to be demeaning. I say that to honor Christ, because if he has not defined marriage that way, then we do not have a right to redefine it any other way. If it is not one man, one woman for life, it's not marriage. That's the irony of this month. June is called Pride Month. It's a month set aside out of the year to celebrate LGBTQ rights. 
Culturally, we're told that pride is a good thing, being proud of the way people are. As they believe they're being liberated, learning to become more open-minded, that those things that we once were ashamed of, now we should be proud of. That's what's behind all of this. But you know, as well as I do, biblically speaking, pride is not a good thing. In fact, just think about what James says. We were studying this this week in our family worship. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride sets itself against God. What could be more arrogant than to take the precious gift of marriage that God has given so that we could better glorify him and then to redefine it by our own propensities? And our world has forgotten how to blush. And so this very month, they celebrate the thing of which we ought be most ashamed. I, I saw yesterday our, our president hosted a, a pride event on the White House lawn. And if you saw pictures of it, there were two American flags, and right in between them was a rainbow flag celebrating LGBTQ rights. It's not only an a display of utter depravity to replace God's law with our own, but it's insanity to think that we can provoke the living God without consequence, isn't it? Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Look again, look at the last part of verse 4. Thinking of the vulnerability of of God's good gift of sexuality. Verse 4, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, understand this very, 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 very clearly. God is not saying adultery or sexual immorality are the unpardonable sins. It's very good news because there are many of us who would be guilty if that were the unpardonable sin. We have men and women in our congregation who have been sexually immoral, who have committed adultery and through grievous tears have returned to God in faith and repentance. And God, in his kindness, has gloriously restored marriages. And every one of those couples would tell you to take this warning in verse 4 seriously. They can show you the scars on their hearts to show you just how vulnerable we are to destruction when we obey God's in instructions for marriage. And so the author of Hebrews is saying here, heed God's warning. That language, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous, it's not saying there's no forgiveness for the repentant. What it is saying is that one day every person will stand before God giving account for all of the decisions made in their life, all of the actions of their life, even the ones that you think you have done in utter secrecy, that you've hidden from your spouse, that you've hidden from your employer, that you've hidden from your fellow church members. God has seen them all, and all will be laid bare. And God doesn't judge according to majority opinion. He doesn't judge based on how well we hid it from the watching world. He judges based on his own holiness. I say this on not my own authority, the authority of Scripture. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment.
And Paul widens the net to show that all sin before God puts us in great danger. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, one of those at least checks off every person in this room, doesn't it? That's all of us, but keep going. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For those who have seen your sin and have come to the Savior, you know how precious those words are. How wonderful those words are. You've seen the vulnerability of your own heart and you've come to Christ for forgiveness. Don't you long for the day when sin will be a thing of the past? Especially sexual sin. In heaven, all sin will be a thing of the past. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? But it also gives a warning. Either Jesus will expel sexual immorality from our lives, washing us of it, turning us from it, or we will one day be expelled from the presence of Christ. But to endure in unrepentant sin, according to Hebrews, according to 1 Corinthians 6, according to the whole swath of Scripture, guarantees us that we will stand before a holy God and be declared guilty. Those who repent, though know that there is a love far greater than anything this world can offer. Look with me at Luke 6 for a moment. Excuse me, Luke 7. The Pharisees hosted a party for the Lord Jesus. They weren't really interested in getting to know him. They were interested in telling him their thoughts and and declaring to him why they were right, they hosted a, a party, and a woman shows up, a sinful woman, one that a Pharisee would want nothing to do with. Look at verse 37. A woman, uh, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's a kind way of saying she was sexually immoral, that she was a, a serial adulteress. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. If you know the story, you know the Pharisees were upset. What is she doing here? Jesus, you ought not let somebody like that even touch you. It didn't make sense to them. And why would she waste that expensive ointment? And Jesus speaks this wonderful line. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. For those who have experienced that washing, that cleansing of Jesus Christ, you love him. 
and you can persevere in faithful, godly marriage and sexuality. You can turn from those things. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better. It is not too much to give up sexual immorality for the sake of Christ. In fact, when you do that, you lose nothing and you gain everything. Listen, that's the third point I want you to see. Jesus is better. We get a hint about this in the text. Uh, We separate verses 4 and 5, 4 about marriage, 5 about money. In the Greek, the verses pretty much run together. Both of them are, are warnings about desires for good things, marriage, sexuality, money. They're both good things in the economy of God, but they are sinful when we love them so much that we will disobey Christ to get them. And in both cases, the solution there in verse 5 is the same. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you get it? Do you get what he's saying in verse 5 about money? What you're looking for in your greed? Only Jesus can actually satisfy it. And what you're looking for, verse 4, in sexual immorality and adultery? Only Christ can actually provide what your heart longs for. And so in both cases, Jesus is infinitely better. When God made us, he set eternity in our hearts. He made us after his own image. He made us for fellowship with himself. And yet, because of sin, we look to all the wrong places for it. Money was made as a good gift. Sex and marriage were made as good gifts but they make terrible gods. And so if we desire the deep, soul-satisfying experience of knowing and walking with Jesus Christ, then we must stop looking to stuff and people instead of looking to Him. We must repent of sexual sin. We must repent of greed, as we'll see next week, and look to Christ as the one who alone can satisfy. Look at Solomon, who had all the wealth and 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he was a miserable man. It can bring momentary pleasure, but not lasting satisfaction. Only Christ is able when we seek Christ above all else, the one who says he will never leave us or forsake us, there and there alone we find the contentment that verse 5 is talking about. Marriage is such a beautiful picture of what is ours in Jesus Christ. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride by giving his own self for her. It's the sincerest picture of love on the face of the earth. That dramatic picture is the reason marriage exists. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage, and he says it's a mystery. And husbands are saying, yeah, it is. I hadn't figured it out yet. But Paul says, actually, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of the love of Jesus for his people. That's why Christians care so much about marriage, not because we're prudish and easily offended, 
It's not that we're ascetics and want everybody to be miserable. No, not at all. We want everybody to be joyful, and we believe that the fullness of joy is found in Jesus Christ alone. We care so much about marriage and preserving biblical marriage because biblical marriage is the clearest earthly picture that we have of Christ and the church. Everyone who reveres the gospel must care about marriage, not as culture has defined it, but as God has designed it in Scripture to be a picture of the love of Christ. The church must be a prophetic voice in the face of a culture that defaces marriage. If we love Christ, we must cherish it and protect marriage from all vulnerability. And you know what you're going to be told by the world around you. You're going to be told, judge not lest you be judged. The fact that we too are sinners doesn't exempt us from taking the stand. We cannot be silent on the issue of the beauty of biblical marriage. What's at stake in marriage is nothing less than the gospel itself. So we must stand and we must speak for marriage as God has ordained it because it's designed to be a picture intelligible to all the world of the beauty of the love of Christ for his church. By way of application, I think there's at least three kinds of folks in this room for whom these words may be hard words. First, we have folks who probably are caught in the spiral of sexual immorality. And again, sexual immorality is any sexual activity, even lusting in the heart, Jesus says, that is outside of biblical marriage. And you may be addicted to sexual sin, or you may be dabbling in it and will soon be addicted. Let me plead with anybody in here that is struggling with this, run to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Not only does Jesus give grace to the repentant, but he has the power to break the reign of sin in your life. You cannot do it. 12-step programs cannot do it. Jesus alone can break the power of sexual sin. And Satan's going to want to tell you, you're alone, you're stuck, this is who you are. Alone, without Christ, that is true. But even sexual sin is powerless against the Spirit's work in a believer. And the more you seek after Jesus Christ and let his words seep down into your soul, the more grace he gives for you to fight that sin. But hear me on this. If you do not put that sin to death, it will strangle your walk with Christ. So be killing sin or it'll be killing you, as John Owen said. That's the first thing. To those of you who are dabbling in it or in the spiral of sexual immorality, get out of it right now. Run to Jesus. Talk to a brother. Talk to an elder. Talk to a sister. Whatever you need to, but get help and get out of it before you are stuck in it. Second, we have a lot of people in this room who are married and marriage may not be very joyful for them. 
A lot of people wonder if they married the wrong person. Maybe when, when you got married, your motives were wrong or you weren't a believer and since then you've come to know Christ and maybe marriage hasn't been a very joyful experience. The scriptures speak to that. Paul and Peter both address those who are married to unbelievers. Well, regardless of why and how you got into marriage and what sins may have precipitated it, your chief responsibility in your home is to sacrificially love the person you're married to, even if your marriage in some ways disappoints you. God's chief goal in your marriage is not your happiness, but your holiness. And most marriages fall apart, not because people fall out of love, but because they fall out of repentance. God was the one who joined the two of you together. Your imperfect marriage is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's a grace from above. It came to you with the touch of God on it, and so it remains dear to him. So what do you do if you're in a marriage that's hard, that's disappointing, that you think some days, I don't want to be here anymore? It's going to sound like a platitude, but it's a very, very simple truth. Invest more and more and more and more and more of your heart into knowing and walking with Jesus Christ. Into studying his word, into feasting upon him. Because even if you were married to the greatest spouse in the world, And I've already got that privilege, by the way, sorry. But even if you're married to the greatest spouse in the world, if you are not first seeking the Lord Jesus, then none of it matters. Seek him first and with your whole heart, and he will give you the grace to endure and even to enjoy marriage that may at times be imperfect and difficult. Third, we have people in this room who are single and you really struggle to be content in the state of singleness. I do not know God's will for you, but I can say for this moment, trust your God, believer. If the best thing were for you to be married right now, he would have seen to it that you were married right now. Romans 8.31 is true. If he didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? If it were best for you to be married, then God would have seen to it that you would be married at this moment. Sometimes God gives what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 7, the gift of singleness. I don't think he means some people are just really good at being single or naturally content being single. There are not many that are that way. I think the gift of singleness is really Christ himself, that he gives himself fully to you. And every space in your life, and even those longings to be married, those spaces that feel incomplete without Jesus, Jesus actually gladly fills them with himself. 
He's the perfect spouse, and the contentment that he can provide is infinitely greater than what you would find even in the greatest earthly spouse. Now, one more thing. Each of these struggles with marriage, whether it's sexual immorality or an unhappy marriage or discontent singleness, they're all very much in the here and now. They're all very much in the temporal. But we need to remember all earthly marriage is intended ultimately to lift our minds and our hearts to that day when in glory Jesus Christ returns to receive his bride, we who are indeed bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and the perfect lover of our souls will take us to himself. I know there are little girls here who dream of their wedding day. Men don't tend to do that, but women tend to. God has just made us differently. But you've thought about everything from the table decorations to what you're going to wear. Well, no matter how wonderful that day you dreamed of was or may one day be, we can all have absolute certainty that Jesus will one day return and all who believe in him will take part in a wedding ceremony and banquet that will knock your socks off. And those of you here who have daughters, I'm so glad to have three sons when I think about paying for weddings. Those of you with two or three daughters, I, don't, I, I can't even imagine. Who's the bride in this eternal wedding? It's the church. It's you and me. How could we ever afford that kind of wedding? Under Jewish custom, it was the groom's father who paid the bill. You get where we're going, don't you? How could we ever afford to take our spots at the wedding supper of the Lamb? What would we wear? Our Heavenly Father has paid for it all by sending His Son for us. What do we wear? We wear the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus, gifted to us and received by faith alone. Earthly marriage lifts our eyes to that day when Jesus will return and take us to himself. Let me close with the words of Revelation 19, starting at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Blessed, Revelation says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Lord, this is glorious to think that one day the Lord Jesus will come for us, his weak, pitiful, unlovely bride, and he will make us lovely. And he will love us with an everlasting love. And we will dwell with him in an eternal honeymoon the likes of which we cannot begin to imagine. Father, we long for that day. 
And until that day comes, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in whatever lot you have called us to for right now, whether it's marriage or singleness. Help us to be faithful. To hold marriage not only in honor by all, but to be precious in all of our sight. Give us grace when we have spoken uncharitably about marriage or to our spouses and help us to love them just as Jesus has loved us. We pray it in Christ's name.